Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're going to be continuing in our series, AD 30. I've entitled our message, uh, Jesus Told Us There'd Be Days Like This. So Jesus told us there'd be days like this. You've all heard the saying, I think you have, Mama told me there'd be days like this. Are you familiar with that saying? And we use it when our expectations of life you know, are sort of uh, on the rocks or on the ropes. Uh, we use it to admit that our experience is no longer matching the ideal. It's, it's when our life is sort of like a, a country music song. You know, in a country music song, uh, you lose your house, you lose your truck, uh, you lose your dog, you lose your wife, not necessarily in that order, and then by the end of the song, you get them all back, hopefully. That's country music for you. And that's sort of when we say this, Mama told me there'd be days like this, you know, when life isn't working out the way we expected. Van Morrison sings a song with this title, Days Like This. He sort of flips the idea in the other direction. The song describes a person who's struggling, yes, but the days mama promises are better days when it's not going to be bad and you're losing things out of your life. But either way, life is confusing when expectation and reality collide, which is a lot of life on this earth, especially for people of faith. Because we know the true God. We know that our God rules the universe. Yet, even the Bible admits Satan is the prince of this world. It's an interesting situation. God sovereignly rules the universe. Satan is described as the prince of this world. We know that God is all-powerful. Yet, even as people of faith, we rarely see its impact. We know that God is all-knowing and he's ever-present, yet many corners of the world and many epochs in history don't reflect it. We know that God will one day bring history into a future with his stamp all over it, yet today, sometimes, it looks as though God has lost control of his creation. So we live in a world, especially as Christians, where our faith's expectations and reality collide. If you're an atheist, you don't have to make sense of it. If you're an agnostic, you don't have to make sense of it. It makes perfect sense to an agnostic. Who knows? Who knows who's really in charge? But for people of faith, we have a more acute problem because we know what God could do. We know who God is, and yet he disappoints in some ways. But here's the good news. Jesus said there'd be days like this. Jesus did say this. Our confusion about what's going on in the world around us as it relates to the difficulty, the sickness, the suffering, the war, the death, our confusion should actually make sense. And our confusion today is not exactly the first of its kind. Last week I mentioned a simple question which was asked by the disciples post-resurrection. I want to show you this verse because this is so telling. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. I can get that on the screen. So this is right after Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about ready to ascend. He's been with them, you know, maybe a number of weeks, I think 40 days. 
when they'd come together, they asked Jesus this, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you may just read through Acts and think, well, that's, you know, I don't see this as a big deal or a big question. This is actually huge because this shows the massive misperception of the disciples even after Jesus rose from the dead. You see the word kingdom there. They're thinking of Israel as this earthly political kingdom where the world will sort of rise and fall around Israel. Jesus, now that he's pronounced that he's the Messiah and we know he's son of God, he's gonna reign from Jerusalem and all nations will come to know the true God because the Messiah is here, all right? So that's what they mean by kingdom. We're in a passage in Matthew today where we're talking about the secrets of the what? Kingdom. Because in that Matthew passage, Jesus is trying to avoid this question. The disciples expected that with the arrival of Messiah, Israel's going to reassert herself on the world stage. It'll be like during the days of Solomon and David. Evil will be judged. Messiah is here. Evil will be judged. Righteousness will reign. For the first time ever, God's kingdom would be on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer would be answered. That's what the disciples are expecting. They're expecting apocalyptic cosmic events to set things right and create order and God in Jesus will reign. But instead of doing that, right after this question, Jesus would ascend. He'd leave us. He's not gonna reign. He's gonna leave us. Now granted, he said he'd leave the Holy Spirit, but I'm not sure that's the best substitute. We want Jesus reigning on earth. Israel would not be reborn, but the church would be born. The church is an era that no prophet clearly saw in the Old Testament. The golden age of Messiah reigning on earth would not begin. Instead, you and I live in this sort of between stage. Between when the king came and when he comes again. Between when the king announced his power and glory, but he doesn't fully display it until the future. An age not seen by the prophets, but an age described by Jesus in our text today so that we would understand it. When our expectations and reality collide, we would remember, oh, Jesus told us there'd be days like this. So Jesus gave us Matthew 13 so that we would understand the world we live in today. Now, what causes you and I to doubt God at some level was actually described in this chapter so that we would not. I want to begin. Now, this last week we began this. I didn't really say much about it. The first point in this passage is, in the new kingdom of heaven... Territory is one when God's word bears fruit in receptive hearts, okay? We're not gonna repeat last week, but that's what last week was about. It's in this group of parables or stories or illustrations, comparisons, similes. It's in this group of many parables to show us that this new kingdom is not just gonna be sort of shock and awe where Jesus comes to earth and he takes over, but in the new kingdom, in this in-between stage before he comes again, this is what the kingdom looks like. It's a little more slow, it's a little more boring. It's not Jesus ruling from Jerusalem, it's simply God's word bearing fruit in the hearts of his followers. And in the parable of the sower, we saw that, that the soil is a various kinds of hearts and there was hard soil and rocky soil and thorny soil and there was good soil. 
And as the word of God hit these different kinds of hearts, we responded differently to it. And when it hits good soil and we respond to God and we obey him, that's the kingdom of heaven moving forward. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon, but it's a part of this broader group of parables. Second, and where we want to begin today, in the new kingdom of heaven, evil will not only exist, but it will prosper unjudged until the end of the age. Now that's something none of us are real happy about. This is the big one. This is the big disappointment in God for people of faith in all generations. This is actually the reason people leave our faith. This is the reason people won't join our faith. Because they cannot make sense of a God if this is the reality. Evil's going to not only exist in the realm of a a world that's sovereignly governed by God, but it's going to prosper and it's going to be unjudged until the end of the age. Job was actually written to address a similar concept. David wrote Psalms to address exactly this uh, concept where he complains pretty directly to God. If you have a problem with God over this kind of an issue and you think God can't handle your disappointment, read the Psalms. David was right out there with this issue. God can handle it. Wisdom literature addressed it. And the point of some of the wisdom literature is that someday it would all be made right but that in this life it doesn't make sense to people of faith who understand they believe in an all-powerful and sovereign God. But here's the problem for us. If you have an Old Testament view of the future, or if you have sometimes our view of the future, this is someday. This is meant to be the time where things are made right because Messiah has arrived. If you go back to the third page of your Bible and look at Genesis 3.15, it's going to describe how, after sin entered the world, and this is in the era where God is talking about uh, the curses on man, woman, Satan, etc. And, and he says that the seed of the woman is going to ultimately uh, crush Satan's head. So because Eve was deceived and then Adam, I don't think Adam was deceived, I think Adam just decided, okay, Eve's leaving the garden, I'm going with, she's the only woman on the planet. If you've got a better explanation, you can tell me after the service. But the New Testament makes it clear Adam wasn't deceived. He willfully disobeyed God. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully disobeyed God. And in the curses that followed, he said to the woman, you know, it's going to be the woman's seed, or to Satan, it's going to be the woman's seed. Since you deceived this woman, it's going to be her seed, the seed of the woman. Something will be produced from a woman. There will be a child, a man-child, that will ultimately crush you. You deceived her, she's going to have a baby that's going to crush you someday. That's a promise of Messiah. You will bruise his heel, a reference to the crucifixion, but he is going to crush your head. So here's the point. That's Jesus is here. He's with his disciples. This should be the time in history where that happens. It has happened. He's come. But he doesn't do that. In the cross, we know he defeats Satan. But Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. We should be winning. We've got God. But we're not winning. And Jesus knew we would, we would wonder, we would struggle with that. Messiah was to bring in an era of righteousness, but it hasn't happened. Rather, good and evil both prosper together, and sometimes it looks like evil is winning. 
Fritz Haber is probably the most important person in your life that you've never heard of. He was a secularized Jew in Germany who started to make his mark just prior to World War I. Haber was a chemist. He was married to a brilliant woman named Clara. Before World War I, in the middle of a looming food shortage in Germany, Haber discovered a way to separate nitrogen out of air that produced ammonia, an ammonia drip. This ammonia could be put into fertilizer. So Fritz Haber is one of the main reasons that the world today can support 7 billion people because of crop yields improving through fertilizer. It was his invention. He was, he was a genius in his era. If that's all you know about Fritz Haber's life, you might think this man was good because he made a tremendous difference in the world. But there's more to Fritz Haber's life. He was also a very loyal German who signed up to fight in World War I, and as the war progressed, he made it an ammonia gas that could kill enemy soldiers. So the same technology that allowed him to create the best fertilizer additive on the planet is the reason we started out with gas in warfare. In 1915, at, I asked Daniel Croissant, uh, the only French word I can say well, I asked him how to pronounce this, I might not get it right, Ypres, Belgium, we saw it on the screen earlier, in 1915, Haber turned on his gas machine at the very place that was mentioned in that video. And a great green cloud about the size of a whale emerged. The soldiers on the other side could see it coming across no man's land. As it approached, every living thing in its path dried up and died. Then it hit the Allied soldiers on the front lines, and it killed every last soldier. The lingering gas even hurt innocent civilians. Haber thought this was a grand success. The German officials agreed. Haber went back home to visit his wife. She expressed outrage at his gas machine. The very thing he had used to save lives was now an instrument of death. She confronted him. He didn't want to listen. So in the middle of the night, she took his service revolver. She walked out into the garden. She shot herself in the heart. The next morning, Haber put on his uniform and went back to the front lines to unleash more of his deadly gas in World War I. Good and evil, side by side. The greatest inventions in history that benefit all of mankind, the worst inventions in history that allow us to destroy each other and the image of God in our fellow man and woman. Fertilizer and military gas, side by side. That's the way the world is. In this new, Jesus told us there'd be days like this, in this new kingdom of heaven, we have evil prospering. And we have good, prospering, great causes, great influence, and horrible things at the same time. Matthew 13, 24 to 31, Jesus said, there'd be days like this. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it then have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the reap with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. 
This is Jesus explaining the era we live in. It's Jesus saying there's going to be days like this where you have the wheat and the tares growing up together. The story here is, is a wheat field. Tares is actually a name for what we know is called bearded darnel. It's actually a weed in the Middle East. And once sprouted, nobody can tell the difference pretty much between these two crops, if you will. You've got the wheat. We know what wheat looks like. You've got bearded darnel, and frankly, it looks just like wheat. And so Jesus says in this illustration, which they all understood, once they've sprouted, you can't really tell the difference, and the roots become intertwined, so you really can't weed them. Only at harvest are they separated. There are actually laws against doing this to somebody else's field. If you wanted to get back at somebody, you sowed bearded darnel in their wheat field. This was a real thing. There are laws in countries around the world to prevent this, in India specifically, so that you wouldn't do this to your neighbor. There were laws in the Roman Empire against this. Because only at harvest can you tell the difference. At harvest, you sort of thresh it all, you get the grain separated, and the people who really are working meticulously with the grain will then see that grain is sort of this, you know, sort of this blonde colored, and bearded Darnell is slate gray. And only then can you actually take them apart. Jesus said the world is like that field. He said, there are going to be days like this where good and evil are going to grow side by side. Sometimes it's hard to know who's who. Satan is sowing seed. God is sowing seed. Both will prosper side by side, and God will sort them out at the harvest. As he explains it, he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. See, this isn't what the disciples wanted to hear, and it's not what you and I want to hear. I don't necessarily want the era we live in. We've got Messiah, We've got the Son of God. We've got the MVP of history. We've got the winning combo. Jesus is our quarterback. And he's out. And we've got to wait. We've got to live in this era where evil prospers. And someday he'll come again. That's not really what the disciples wanted to hear. And it's not what we want to hear. The story ends with us winning. But... The disciples would not have liked how God is resetting the rules of the game. There's another story just like this at the end of the passage. It's very similar, where, where God is comparing the kingdom to a great dragnet. Now, there were multiple ways to fish back then. Uh, none of it as fun as you know casting a line and having a fish on the end, but they would have a couple of kinds of nets. You'd have a, a net that was sort of circular, had little weights around the end, and you would throw that net. It took some real skill to do that. And then it would quickly go to the bottom, and you would sort of use a rope to sort of grab the bottom, and then some fish would be caught in. You wouldn't catch a lot of fish doing that. Maybe if you came upon a big school, but it was a small net. You had to throw it. And then there was what called a drag net, a little more like some of the commercial fisheries of our day, which basically just scrape everything in their path. That net would be laid out maybe hundreds of yards. The corners would be uh, connected. There's buoys at the top, weights at the bottom, and then it would eventually be, you know, a circle was made, and it started to be pulled in, and everything in its path was caught in that dragnet. Jesus used that illustration to make the same point as the wheat and the tares. 
That's the era we live in, where there's this great dragnet, and good fish and bad fish, rough fish that you would throw out and never eat, and good fish are all going to be together until the end of the age, and then God will do the sorting. But we just inherently want the world to get better because we believe in a God who's in charge. Let me tell you about something that happened in church history. If you were to, some of you may or may not be familiar with these terms, a lot of you have pretty deep theological backgrounds, so they probably are, but amillennialism and premillennialism, okay? So premillennialists believe that you know, Jesus is, is going to come back and take the church out of the world and, and then he's going to reign for a thousand years and before the millennium there'll be some, you know, he's going to have the rapture and so on. Millennium means a thousand years. So a premillennialist believes Jesus is going to sort of right the ship and then he's going to rule. An amillennialist doesn't believe that. An amillennialist believes that in history, mankind, because of the influence of the gospel, is just going to get better and better and better and better until it looks like Jesus is here. Which one of those views do you think is dying in the last hundred years in our world? Amillennialism. It was a predominant view before World War I. It was pretty significantly believed. But after World War I, World War II, and mass genocides, we finally come to the conclusion that we're not really getting much better, are we? We're coming to the conclusion what Jesus said. You've got good things going on, the kingdom of heaven, but you have evil growing on going on as well. Both are growing. And the fact that evil is growing the way it is, is again, sort of the number one issue among skeptics against our faith, is if God is really in charge, we shouldn't see both of these issues prospering. Genocide. Sex trafficking. Poverty. War human brokenness on a scale that we find unimaginable doesn't sound like a world where God is in charge. But Jesus told us there'd be days like this. He said this to his disciples. Third, in the new kingdom of heaven, things will start small, but eventually grow large and touch everything in its path. A couple of parables he uses here, they're very similar, so I'm combining them. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Then he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The Old Testament expectation of the beginning of the Messianic era. The Old Testament expectation was when Messiah comes, it's going to be shock and awe. No, he's taken over. It's going to be military, social, everything. Absolute domination, apocalyptic events. Leave no doubt who's in charge. Instead, Jesus said, it's not going to be like that. It's going to have very humble, tiny beginnings. When Jesus rose from the dead, that's exactly what happened. He refers to it as sort of like a mustard seed or leaven. It wasn't, you know, a mustard seed was very tiny. A mustard seed doesn't become a huge tree. It's all like an oak. But his point here is not the size of the tree at the end, but the size of the tree compared to the seed it starts with. I think of something tiny that 
dominates the world. I think of the virus, the coronavirus, COVID, humble beginnings. Now there's some debate about that, and I'm not trying to start a holy war here, okay? Remember that, okay? All right, it's not a vaccine message. You know, maybe it started in a bat cave. Maybe it started in a lab. Some people believe it started from a beer, a corona beer that evidently the sales went way down after the virus broke out because people thought corona was giving them. If you believe that, you've actually just had too much beer is, is actually what's going on there. And I want to meet one of those people, actually, because I would enjoy just educating myself a little bit about what gets somebody to that point. But in two years, this tiny little unseen virus, you, you got to respect this little bugger. In two years, it has hit the whole planet. That's impressive. However it started. Small things that can grow exponentially and change the world. That's what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like, Jesus said. There's a story about something small that became great in somebody's life. Stuck in a dead-end job, strapped for money, Kyle McDonald came up with an improbable plan. Starting with one red paper clip, he would trade on the internet until he exchanged it for a house. I know what some of you are doing this afternoon on Kijiji. First, he traded the red paper clip for a fish-shaped pen. Huh, a Jesus pen. Anyway, never mind. Next, he traded the pen for a doorknob. He traded the doorknob for a Coleman stove. Must have been a nice doorknob. He traded the Coleman stove for an electric generator. He, he traded the generator for a Budweiser sign and a keg of beer. He traded uh, that for a snowmobile. I'm not sure if the beer remained, if he drank that and just traded the sign, but he traded it for a snowmobile. Exactly one year and 14 trades later, McDonald finally reached his goal. He exchanged a part in a Hollywood movie for a home in Saskatchewan, Canada. Started with a paper clip. Ended up living in Saskatchewan. I don't know how you Albertans feel about that. It's kind of, that's kind of funny, actually, isn't it? If we were to pick on people from Saskatchewan. But I'm sure some of you are here, so I'm not going to do that. The true story of Kyle McDonald is told in his book, One Red Paperclip. He's still making money off of this deal. Now the book is being made into a movie. Fame, fortune, a book, a movie deal, and a home. It all began with one paperclip. Christianity is like that paperclip. It's like the virus. When Jesus rose from the dead... His disciples weren't even with him at first. It was down to a few followers who saw a resurrected Jesus. In fact, it was so small that its followers were killed. It had no public support. It was okay to kill Jesus' followers because nobody was going to resist it. It grew mostly among the slaves and the poor classes, but it grew. And it grew, and it grew in its influence until during the last century, the 1900s, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, Christianity became the most universal religion in history, with believers today composing a majority of the population in two-thirds of the world's 238 countries. It began and ended the century, the last century is the world's biggest religion. Began with 555 million believers, 32% of the world population, in 1900, and by the end of the century, almost 2 billion believers, about 31% of the population. 
Those counted Christians are divided among 33,820 denominations. Whew, because we've done such a good job with Jesus' prayer that we would all be one. Wow, we mucked that up. Almost 34,000 denominations representing our various views of God's word. Some 386 million believers are in independent churches. Apart from the historic Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant branches, Christians counted as belonging to other groups have quadrupled since 1970. Huge increases among Pentecostals and Charismatics. Two billion people who would follow Christ. At some level, I realize a lot of that's just cultural, but still, two billion out of seven billion. And with that influence, and I realize this is not popular to say because people right now want to totally denigrate anything that's happened in Western society over the last 300 years, but... Christians have spearheaded almost every social cause on the planet that improves life. Anti-slavery, that came out of Christianity. Anti-sex trafficking, most of those movements, organizations are coming from Christians, orphanages all over the world. Anti-poverty initiatives, microloans, a lot of Christian organizations doing that, not exclusively. Laws that protect the unborn. Laws that protect the aging. Laws that protect the handicapped. Laws that see the image of God in all people and want to protect it. They're almost all Christian movements. We, like leaven, influence values as we permeate societies where we exist. Jesus said it'd, it'd be just like that, how it's going to work. And finally, in the new kingdom of heaven, it's the one thing worth giving everything else up for. Again, two parables that are making almost the same point, so I'm going to read them together. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. So what's going on here, because this sounds like this guy's committing uh, some sort of crime here, and he's not. But in that era, there were no banks. So people would, time of war, you know, the soldiers are coming, what do you do with your stuff? You don't leave it in your house, your house is going to be ransacked. So you go out and you bury it on your property. And then maybe you die and somebody else is around. They, they see something's been unearthed and in that era, it wasn't okay for them to just take it, but they could buy the field and take it. Now that seems a little fraudulent to us, but that was legal. There were laws about what people found. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, because he couldn't take it legally, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then it's his. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So I, I was wondering, like, I spent a little time contemplating why Jesus included these two parables. Because it's sort of, you know, here, here's this point. The kingdom of heaven is priceless. You know, like, really? Following Jesus has great value. God needs to be number one in your life. I mean, there's a headline. I think Jesus needs some better material because I'm thinking, why, why is he saying this? Why, how would this be received by the hearers? He's kind of, and I, I think this is why he bothered to include these. I have, I have a suggestion. Because he's actually telling them stuff they don't want to hear up until this point. Those first parables are not good news to the disciples. They don't want an era where good and evil prosper together and someday God's going to come and make it right. That's not good news. They want shock and awe, just like we do. We want God entering humanity and fixing things. We want justice in our world now. We want evil to be punished, banished. So what Jesus has been telling him is not exactly good news. 
He's giving them a reality check. He's telling them there's going to be days like this. He's delivering bad news. The kingdom they wanted, I would agree, was actually a better version. But it's not what God has chosen to do. They wanted Jesus to rule now. They wanted Satan and evil punished. Not that it's just Jesus won the victory at the cross, but someday it'll take place. No, they want Satan punished now. So do we. They wanted a righteous world. So do we. They wanted a close to the history of a broken world. So do we. Jesus changed the game. And, and I would kind of agree with him. He changed the game for the worse, not the better in some ways. And so I think he tells these near the end to assure them that, that this is still the most important pursuit they can be a part of. The world isn't going to look like the, what they expected. It's not going to be all fixed now, but following Jesus is the most important thing they can do. It's what has great value, and it's the one thing that you must have if you want to get the most out of this life on earth. Man was walking his dog on a riverside path in Bedfordshire, England. He found an ancient gold penny. After examining it, coin expert Richard Bishop said, it's quite simply the most important single coin find the last hundred years. He said, we fell off our chairs when we realized what it was. I don't know if that's literal or not. The 1,200-year-old penny bears the image of Conwulf, Anglo-Saxon king who ruled Mercia between 796 and 821. There are seven other similar coins in existence, but this is the only one ever found from this time period. The coin was actually discovered in 2001, and the exact location is still undisclosed. Why? Because officials fear the knowledge would trigger a gold rush, starting a stampede of amateur treasure hunters sort of digging in that area. Prior to the auction, the coin was expected to sell for about a quarter of a million dollars. So there's no way of putting a price on it. One hasn't ever been found before. It's unique. The uniqueness paid off in 2004. The coin brought over $400,000 at auction. I suspect with the way those things have appreciated, it's probably twice that now. Made it the most expensive British coin in history. This priceless little treasure. You have found an ancient treasure. Jesus. Jesus is that treasure. This same Jesus who may have disappointed his disciples by not bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth at that moment is the Jesus that we know who died for us, paid the penalty for our sins. It's the same Jesus who has the authority to forgive us for every wrong choice that we have ever made. The same Jesus who in his forgiveness also gives us his righteousness, his perfect moral perfection. When we come to faith in Jesus, God takes the perfection of Jesus and puts it on our sort of moral account in heaven and says, you are righteous now, even though we're not. Jesus, who's God in the flesh. And even though his world, its future, its present, even his promises may not work out the way we would like, may not look the way we would like. As we face disappointment living in this world, this broken world, that doesn't make sense at times because how God is in charge, yet it is so broken. Even though that's the case, he's the treasure. He's worth everything. And someday, it will all be worth it.
someday we'll see him face to face. God, we thank you for your word. And, and I do find this encouraging, even though I'm sure it wasn't all great news 2,000 years ago. I find it encouraging. You kind of warned us that history would look this way. And many times we look at your word, we look at who you are, we look at who Jesus is, and we, we're disappointed because we wish that you would exert yourself into history and into our reality in ways that you choose not to. And, and we have debates about why that is, and yet we don't need to because you sort of predicted this, that we would have a world where good and evil grow exponentially side by side until the end of the age. But we do know because of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done and your victory over sin and death, we know that in the end we win, that you are victorious. And I pray that you would help us to live with that faith and to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every first weekend of the month, we celebrate communion together. It's a celebration of what Jesus did for us, a time to remember what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. You know, it's interesting, I find some of the events around the cross and the resurrection to be very interesting because if you look at the Old Testament, you, you, people who sort of look to the heavens, look to the stars to sort of interpret what God or the gods were doing, that was a part of paganism. And if you're in the Old Testament, if people did that, there was like bad consequences. I mean, you know, like might be stoned. It was a death penalty for being one of those kinds of people. And yet, I find it interesting that most pagan religions, most parts of the pagan world in Jesus' day would have believed that you can sort of look to the heavens to find out what the gods are doing, if you will. Even though we believe in one God, they didn't. And yet, at Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus used, God used exactly those kinds of events to get people's attention. There is a darkening, a blackout of the sky at noon on the day that Jesus died. And with his resurrection came what? An earthquake. The morning he rose again. Which is interesting to me because I think in some ways that God is considering how to make people wonder what happened that those three days. And, and in the cross and the darkness that took place at the cross from noon until three in the afternoon, we know that what happened was God, in a sense, abandoned his son. The first time there was ever a separation in the Trinity, as Jesus bore the sins of humanity, God the Father turned his back on him in darkness, which is a symbol of judgment in all of those pagan cultures. Darkness covered the earth. And what's interesting about that is historians are talking about that for a couple of centuries after that, trying to explain whether it was an eclipse or what it was. Secular historians were trying to explain it. And when Jesus rose from the dead that morning, there was an earthquake, which to many also would have been a sign from the gods or God. My point is this. God wanted people to know he put these experiences into the world surrounding the death and resurrection of his son so that people would have to explain it so they would search for what it really meant. We know what it meant. That God entered humanity in the person of his son and he gave up his life and when he died on that cross he paid the penalty for our sins because somebody needs to pay for the choices we've made. A perfect, moral, holy God cannot just let sin pass. 
And none of us were qualified to die for the rest of humanity because we're all sinners. So he sent himself, the perfect Lamb of God, died for our sin. In communion, we're celebrating that sacrifice. If you're a Christ follower, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for your sins, and you've committed to following him, you're welcome to join us. We have open communion here. After I pray, worship team is gonna sing. You just get up whenever you want to from your seats and just come down the aisle and you'll be given the bread and the cup. Just take those back to your pew. We will take them together in a few moments. God, we thank you for the great sacrifice that was made, a sacrifice which only you could make. None of us were qualified. You saw a broken humanity, and on the third page of Scripture, you recognized we would never rescue ourselves, and so you promised that a child would come, the seed of the woman, through the human family. Yet we now know also you were 100% human, but 100% God at the same time. You were the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. You came into this family, this human family, to rescue us so that you could redeem and overturn the effects of a broken creation, much of which we will not experience until long into the future. Thank you for that, in that each one of us here has hope and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.